because the problem in public health is, you know, you don't see prevention. Like if you put a, a crossing light at this road and save 10 lives from people not being run over by cars, no one thanks you. No one thinks, oh, th you saved my life that I would have died at the end. And that's the whole problem in public right. health. Good news doesn't make the news. Exactly. Right. Good news, no, invisible news. The whole thing with prevention is invisible news. But I think hopefully we'll invest more in public health. We'll invest more of these existential risks. And hopefully, whether it's an asteroid coming or something like that, it won't take an asteroid to make us appreciate an asteroid detection uh, system. Hopefully, it'll, beyond just pandemics, we will actually appreciate science and the early warnings of scientists who are raising alarms much earlier, much sooner. Hey, y'all, you're listening to Risky Behavior, where no subject is off limits. Kick back, tune in, and enjoy a beverage with us as we explore controversial topics and answer scientific questions. Ranging from health and nutrition to behavioral risks and climate change. I'm Dr. Taylor Wallace. And I'm Dr. Shatha Chakraborty. Together, we'll loosen lips and spill tea with special guests you will not want to miss. Eric Feibolding is a Harvard-trained epidemiologist and health economist, senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists in Washington, D.C. In January 2020, he was recognized in the media as one of the first to alert the public on the pandemic risk of COVID-19, sounding the alarm and quickly emerging as the go-to public health scientist on coronavirus. He is part of FAS's work to stop COVID misinformation and communication with the lay public. He's continued to inform the public of the risks right up to supporting Biden in a national television campaign ad. And he's joining us now on Risky Behavior. We're really excited today to welcome Eric Feigl Dane. He is a Harvard-trained epidemiologist and health economist. Since the emergence of COVID-19, he's become quite the Twitter sensation. He's quickly emerged as the go-to public health scientist, sounding the alarm back in January. And that's actually where we first met, Eric. We were in a TV segment together. And uh, since then, you've continued to inform the public about the risks right up to supporting Biden through a TV campaign for one of his super PACs. And it's been national. It's had so many impressions. We can't wait to hear about how well that's done. Obviously, well enough because Biden is our new president. And Ooh. he's been, <laughs> yeah. We want to hear from you. Like, tell us what it's been like since all of this has kind of kicked off and you've had such a public national stage. Thanks for having me. You know, I can't even describe this year. I've had Twitter for over 10 years. I've happily only had 2,000 followers even during my political campaign when I ran for Congress a couple of years ago. And I can't even describe it because it's kind of surreal in that you wish the world was not here. You know, as an epidemiologist, the whole purpose of epidemiology is to prevent disease, is to prevent these things. You know, and obviously in January, I kind of shouted at the rooftops because I felt like no one was, else was shouting it. 
And, you know, I, I got hate mail at the beginning. I got trolled at the beginning. People harassed my family. And, and in certain ways, it would have been great to be wrong, but here we are. And I think in certain ways, you know, scientists are great at doing research, but they're very cautious. And it's, it's one of those things I always tell people, look, you know, you could be wrong. Right. And it's like if you run and double park your car and rush in, for like 10 minutes to do an errand, right? You might get a ticket, but if you get a ticket, it's not the end of the world You get a ticket and it's not guaranteed. But with this, if you're wrong, it really shakes up the world and millions of lives are hurt and trillions of dollars are lost. And again, it's, a, it's a one of those painful realities that, yeah, I guess I was right, but I wish I was wrong. But, you know, I'm still at it because people don't want to admit that there's asymptomatic transmission. And then they didn't want to admit that there's it's airborne. Because it's, like, it's not airborne. We don't know it's airborne. You can't prove it's airborne. Sh- shut the hell up. You don't know it's airborne. It's like um, all the Asian countries assume it's airborne. Why are we not assuming it's airborne? Right. And now, of course, we see it's airborne. But, you know, we could have stopped it way better and faster had we just recognized the big existential risks that what if we're wrong? It really is airborne. What if it actually does spread asymptomatically? But, you know, that's that's the kind of like surreal kind of world that we're living in where, you know, sometimes you're fighting with scientists who don't want to admit the facts until they have every single thing proven. And then, of course, there's the mask wars. Really frustrating. <laughs> right. Really. Frustrating. Right. And, you know, the lockdown wars, the herd immunity, Scott Atlas bullshit wars. Right. When we actually discovered half of all tweets about pro-herd immunity was actually from bots. So clearly there is like this information war driven by someone who wants to spread disinformation with these bots. So it's been a painful 9, 10, 11 months. So here we are still. You know, I I feel your pain because, you know, we're both nutrition scientists and there's a lot of misinformation just in the general field. There's a lot of self-proclaimed experts and a lot of misinformation, bots, mm-hmm. you know, companies purchasing things, activist groups, you know, purchasing things. You know, you even see now that there are a lot of activist scientists or scientists that, you know, are selling a supplement on their website. And it's how do you begin to separate that Separate that from people who really know what they're talking about? I mean, we talk about follow the science, but I don't really think the general public knows you know, I know. Believe when it, it is really frustrating. Normally, I would say listen to WHO and listen to CDC, right? right. That's the normal go-to answer. Exactly. Right. Except WHO has kind of been behind the uh, behind the ball a little bit. Uh, and yeah, what's your take on that? Because well, they were the reason initially that uh, the U.S. was saying don't wear masks because the WHO for a, quite a long time said that it wasn't proven to be effective. They were part of the slow to admit the airborne. It took, uh, uh, I don't know if you remember, but around 4th of July, there was a whole group of like 200 aerosol scientists. And and here's the other war that's like within the the science. There's the virologists who are basically the molecular biologists of viruses. And then there's aerosol scientists who are traditionally the air pollution, environmental engineering, building HVAC design uh, scientists. And they live in different worlds. But but you know they both deal with viruses, airborne viruses. It's just that the, this group have never talked to this group in the past, really. 
And they're basically the airborne folks. This is airborne. You guys are crazy not right. to think it's airborne. Yeah. All the Japanese scientists think it's airborne. And they're like, well, you can't prove it. <laughs> Show me a randomized trial. It's like, we don't have the damn time for a randomized trial. It's still going on, by the way. And eventually one of them, who's a, his, her name is Kim Prather. She's a double National Academy of Science and now National Academy of Engineer. She finally approached Fauci. He's like, Tony. <laughs> this shit's airborne and he's and he's like okay but he recognized her from a previous science meeting it's like okay right. i'll look take a look and if it weren't for that email from kim to fauci we would still not have airborne guidance to this day <laughs> it, it's so crazy and, and and to this day we still have virologists already it's not airborne but that's a different issue but like cdc and who again there's so many people who are in the virology uh infectious disease a niche community. There's like, no, it's not airborne. It's not, you can't prove it's airborne, blah, blah, blah. And they're still to this day. And 60 some people at WHO headquarters in Geneva are actually infected. And they're like, how did the hell that happen? Well, they don't mask in the cafeteria. And um, they, they have a rule that if you're not within one meter of someone, you don't have to wear a mask. It's right. like, <laughs> WHO headquarters, right. like <laughs> outbreak and like, I don't know. Anyway, this is what goes on behind the right. scenes. No, it really is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, some of these systems are really broken. I mean, we've shown that. But my big question to you, well, one, you know, now there are vaccines, you know, that have come or they're becoming available. They are available. And we're going to start uh, distributing those vaccines. What does the world in 2021 look like? I mean, do we get like you know, I think a lot of people want to know, are the, are the chains getting loosened? Like, you know, because there's now a vaccine, like, like what is, what does 2021 look like? You know, the, that's the number one question. When are things going to get back to normal? And we'll have some like 20 million doses vaccines soon within next month or two, but the rollout is going to be slow and it's going to be for healthcare workers initially. Right. And then some essential employees, and then they're going to roll out to seniors. But by the time it gets to like the general public, it's gonna be like late spring or summer. And then that's the ramp up. And the other problem is, you know, there's a saying in vaccines, vaccines don't save lives, vaccine programs save lives. Basically the Biden team is not getting any of the vaccine rollout program info from the Trump team because of the transition blockage. They said, we're not allowed to share with you. So because of this, you know, a bottleneck with the transition, we don't even know. This is what's gonna cost people's lives. This because if you don't have a vaccine rollout program that works, and you know, right now it's really scary because the polls actually show that one third of people say they will take it, one third say I don't know, and one third say no. One third say absolutely flat out no, not even a maybe. So assuming we even convert the one third, most of the one third to yes. We're talking about at max two thirds of people who will take it immediately. That's really scary because, you know, you can have a 100% effective virus. Right now, it's about 90, 95%. Uh, but if half the people don't take it, you have a 50% effective virus, uh, vaccine, you know? Uh, so 100% effective vaccine could easily be nullified very quickly. And if you have only 50% people taking it, that's not enough. You, you need. I mean, this is a behavioral scientist is what I've, I, I spent a significant amount of time studying why there is so much distrust around some right, of these right. solutions, some of these interventions. We see with the flu vaccine how there isn't compliance to taking it seasonally. And why would we expect any difference? A vaccine has proven over and over again. I mean, this is a unique 
situation and we have the world's attention with COVID, but people's behaviors have proven themselves in the past with infectious disease outbreaks and with seasonal infections that we we anticipate, like the flu, why would it be any different? Why would we expect anything more? I, I would say, you know, the pandemic with COVID is a little bit scarier to people's minds than just the flu, right? Because, you know, the whole phrase, just the flu, is a dismissal term. I, I think more people will take it, but I think that the rollout plan is just the tip of the iceberg. Assuming they get over the freezing logistics and cold chain logistics. Um, and again, you have to get to the whole world because this is a pandemic. It's, it's not a first world or developing country only problem. I think you really have to use like strategies, like smoking. People, Everyone who smokes knows it causes cancer, but they still smoke, right? They know it causes yeah. cancer. That's proven. They still do it. It wasn't until you got men uh, to realize it causes impotence this is a sad thing that the social, (laughs) you know, acceptance of smoking eventually dropped and then it became like a stigma not to, but you know, it took a long time and and that we just don't have that time. And I hope we don't get into this. You know, we have mask wars and lockdown wars, you know, the vaccine wars are coming. I I just don't know how to deal with that right now. Well, yeah. I mean, there's always been a lot of skepticism, you know, about vaccines across the population. I used to work for someone that wouldn't vaccinate his kids like I mean it was he would constantly fight the school system and you're sitting there like oh my gosh you are a doctor <laughs> like like yeah everybody like you should be the ones first up to vaccinate your kids yeah <laughs> like well Scott Alice is a doctor too so it doesn't improve anything so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah well let, let me so let me get your perspective and maybe push back a little bit because I think a lot of people are thinking well you know, even though government might be, you know, kind of up in the air right now, especially with industry, I mean, we distribute the flu vaccine every year. There's different strains of the flu. Don't we already have the infrastructure in place, at least in the U.S., to distribute this? Well, right now, we don't have any mandatory uh, flu vaccine kind of rules. I, I think, first of all, next year, we might actually, you know, if you want to send your kids to school by next fall, there might be a, you know, you get a vaccine, just like, you know, you have to get meningitis or tetanus shots, it is a bit harder than the flu because, you know, in certain ways, it's easier to convince those who are scared and um, of the illness. But in the other ways, anything has taught us the mask work, the science is so clear, lockdowns, the science is so clear that this vaccine thing will it will come up in ugly ways. And also, there's different kinds of vaccine hesitancy. There's right wing and left wing. Right, the left wing tends to be the autism kind of uh, skepticism, right. right? And the right wing tends to be the 5G stuff, you know, really off the wall kind of uh, stuff as well. And this is gonna be bad. I don't know how a perfect answer for this because I don't know how bad it will be. Because I feel like you know, the one third who's unsure. I think when Fauci says, here's all the evidence, you know, this is an earlier poll before uh, and when it was still very politicized by Trump trying to push it before election day and without all this trials evidence. Now we have trial evidence. They're starting to show it's very, very safe, but I know there's going to be holdouts. And this is one of those things. I think social networks and behavioral scientists really are just as important if not more important than the epidemiologists, virologists. Yeah, we need to work together on this. 
Yeah. Well, it also kind of gets into regulation. Like, should these online platforms be able to have bots that are giving this information out there that, you know, there, there's all these freedom of speech and freedom of speech is like always a great thing, but sometimes it's the worst thing you could possibly have because you've got some quack doctor out there saying, you know, drink bleach or something like that. I want to piggyback on that before you answer, Eric, because you've managed to really make a voice for yourself in social media, right? So you are you are the person that people are going to now to get credible information. And tell us how you have been able to do that, pull that off. You were telling us in the beginning how you went from like, you weren't really, you weren't expecting to get this platform necessarily, but how did you cut through all the noise? And who's the coolest person who's retweeted you? The coolest? I don't know. Um... AOC has retweeted. Um, That's um, cool. Yeah, uh, Tedros has retweeted, and um, and the president of Mexico, and he tra- actually, <laughs> he translated my tweet into Spanish one weekend on a Saturday, and I'm like, this is kind of funny. It's it's really um, bizarre, but um, so I, first of all, I work in social network research, so I I have studies in social network. I'm actually publishing one soon. Um, one of our trials. But before then, like 13 years ago, I actually started a campaign for cancer prevention that had 6 million people on Facebook. Uh, Causes eventually shut down. And to this day, I actually have a 5 million person breast cancer page that not many people know about. Now you guys know. Um, But I don't don't use it that much. And I've never monetized it. And, and, And that's my rule. You know, there's a lot of people who grift online for anything. I don't. I, I tell people I don't. But you have to understand people's emotions. A lot of the scientists who are the traditional academia scientists, they don't know how to tweet uh, the right way. They don't know how to communicate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, they, they say they're science communicators, but my answer to them is, look, if uh, a butterfly flaps his wings in the forest, but no one hears it, did it even happen? Oftentimes scientists tweet and they get like 10, 20, you know, 100, 200 retweets at most. But one thing I've learned is unless your tweet gets like over 2,000 retweets, it's barely seen by anyone on Twitter. And, right. and, and the key thing is how do you get to that level? And that level requires this, it's, it's a special kind of EQ, emotional intelligence, right? Scientists have a lot of IQ. Um, but in terms of the EQ of communicating, you, you know, it's a, it's a combination. You have to show your emotion of why it's important and, sh- and go into detail to explain it in a lay way and why this new study or finding is relevant and communicate your emotional urgency about something of why you're worried or why you're not concerned. And, and, and it's that kind of, you know, honesty. And sometimes a little bit, a little bit of swearing that you know conveys how angry you are about something, or how frustrated about something that really resonates. And and again, just being genuine. But it's 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 a weird it's a weird formula. I I, I cannot say I, if this were to happen again, it could I could replicate it. It just. Do you think it's a little bit of a, a generational thing? I mean, I, I feel like you know. And there's some science behind this where, you know, you start out in your career and you think you really know something about something and then you get, you kind of figure out, oh, this is like more complex. And uh, like, and then at the end of the, your career, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm God. 
like I'm the one who you know knows everything about A, B, and C. I feel like a lot of the baby boomer scientists you know aren't moving out like you know maybe prior generations, and and I feel like they control a lot of the narrative, especially with the professional societies within government, things like that, where. Um, I don't think, you know, many scientists, at least, you know, at my mid-career stage level would really question whether this is an airborne virus or not. I don't need a systematic review or a large randomized control trial for that. Yeah, I think a lot of scientists are extremely cautious in that they don't want to say anything until you're absolutely certain. You know, there are really good WHO scientists, by the way, who Dr. Mike Ryan is one of my favorites, and he says, if you want to be absolutely certain that you are right before you act, you will lose this pandemic. Being fast, you know, don't question yourself. Moving fast and trying to stop whatever you can is absolutely necessary. And again, if you try to be right, know that you're absolutely right before you do anything, you will be wrong, which is the complete opposite of what most of these scientists do. And so sometimes, hence I say certain things like, folks, asymptomatic transmission, and the scientific community, the conservative parts blow up at me, and then saying, hey, it's airborne. Don't say it's airborne. We don't know it's airborne. You know, blow up at me. And then, you know, there's still things like right now, they said, people said, reinfections are impossible. It not, does not happen. But yet we now know there's like two dozen confirmed cases, which actually compares RNA from both viruses. And there's over several hundred uh, that's suspected. Look, it happens. Well, and there are mutant strains. And the mutant strains, yeah. I said, look, the mutant strain clearly shows that it is more infectious. Like, you don't know that. You don't know that for sure. Right. But, you know, fast forward a month, it is. Like, we have these debates all the time. Well, this is what all causes the distrust, right? Ultimately, is because we're arguing with each other. Scientists appear to not be in agreement across a lot of this stuff, which is, it confuses people. And then the ripple effects are, should I even trust this vaccine? Right. Yeah. And then, you know, this people who attack each other. I've just so you know, I absolutely do not attack anyone who's not named Scott Atlas or a government <laughs> official. <laughs> Yet you've been attacked. I've seen some of the attacks. Yeah, I you. know. Like, how it's, how do you stay like, you know, good humored about it? Because you need to. We've actually so have you, Taylor. You've definitely been attacked quite a bit. You've been attacked quite a bit because we are we put ourselves out there. The three of us are scientists who put ourselves in the forefront of media. And we, you put yourself out on a limb a little bit, make yourself vulnerable, but it's important because of everything we've just been talking about to get the science out to the public, to get, get credible information so people can make better, more informed yeah. decisions. Mm -hmm. How do you stay good humored about it? Like we, we just all have thick skin, there's that, but then ultimately we know that the science isn't static and we evolve right. with it. Yeah. My, my position on COVID has changed considerably since the outbreak. I, I think obviously having a thick skin and being willing, you know, basically, if you've been in the media and social media, you know that, you know, you, you have to be able to take a few punches and be able to know that, you know, you know, you will rue the day uh, someday and you'll be right uh, if you're, if you're self-confident in that. And you'll just realize there's tons of trolls. I, I would say most, most scientists are polite uh, and pretty respectful. There are some that are a little bit rude. But that doesn't really matter because in certain ways, if I duke it out into fist fight with them, it actually hurts, it hurts the trust more. So I'd rather take the punch and just wait it out until the day comes where I believe that I'm right. 
So you're vindicated. I'd rather have that because if if they see scientists punching it back and forth at each other, I think again it basically basically makes people question science and. And those who do throw punches, I, I feel unsad for them because they don't see around the corner. I'm trying to see around the corner that if we start throwing punches, say we're in an argument, we start throwing punches against each other uh, online, people are like, oh, these scientists really don't know what the hell they're talking about. And then exactly. you know, next time, even right. if we agree on masks, it's like, well, you say masks work, but I just heard you guys arguing the other day about this other thing. I don't trust any of you. So... Scientific yeah. pluralism is the science term for this. So as we uh, have to wrap this up today, if you had one message, um, you know, regarding this whole global pandemic, 2021, you know, big picture uh, that you'd want to relate to our viewers. And the future generally, like increased frequency of infectious disease, COVID yeah. is not a one and done, right? We need to no. take advantage of this and prepare more and be proactive about future outbreaks. So yeah, what what do people need to know? Well, I think competent leadership makes all the difference. There's a study today that uh, shows those who lock down more have fewer cases and hospitalizations. And if anything has taught us, bad leadership has deadly consequences. But obviously, democracy is this, you know, a very uh, roller coaster uh, little beast. But I think someday we're going to we're going to come back. We're going to have a 9/11 type commission on this pandemic of how it happened. And we're going to learn the lessons of clear communications that you know even Fauci at the beginning was a little skeptical about certain things. He didn't think there was asymptomatic transmission. He didn't think it was airborne at the beginning. But um but I think it'll basically be that you know there is existential risks that actually are huge that if you're wrong, it could actually hurt millions and hurt trillions in the global economy, then I think we're going to take much more care for them. Because the problem in public health is, you know, you don't see prevention. Like if you put a, a crossing light at this road and save 10 lives from people not being run over by cars, no one thanks you. No one thinks, oh, th you saved my life that I would have died at the end. No one thanks you. And that's the whole problem in public right. health. Good news doesn't make the news. Exactly. Right. Good news, no, invisible news. The whole thing with prevention is invisible news. But I think hopefully we'll invest more in public health. We'll invest more of these existential risks. And hopefully, whether it's an asteroid coming or something like that, it won't take an asteroid to make us appreciate an asteroid detection uh, system. It won't take you know, billions of dollars in uh, in damages and cities drowning for us to appreciate climate change. Hopefully, you'll, you know, beyond just pandemics, we will actually appreciate science and the early warnings of scientists who are raising alarms much earlier, much sooner. So that's, that's my ultimate hope that we ultimately come out of this. Well, I love that. Eric, it's been great having you on today. We're definitely going to have to get you back on the show uh, to talk, you know, nutrition, you know, after this pandemic is fully gone. And we really appreciate your insights today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. Take That's a wrap for today. Have ideas for the show? Tweet us at Risky Behavior DC. That's all one word. My handle at shut the chalk. That's S W E T A C H A K. 
or Taylor's handle, at Dr. Taylor Wallace. That one spelled as it sounds. You can also send us an email at hello.riskybehavior at gmail.com or a voice message at 202-713-5182. Shoot us some science or some shade. Thank you for tuning into Risky Behavior. Till next time.